Holy Hour of Power, the, Je- the Terry and Jesse show. My partner Terry's out doing some apostolic work, and uh, we're having some technical difficulties here with my camera, but you can hear my voice. I am the Latin lover of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Latin lover of Our Lady, and got a great program for you today. Let me tell you some of the things I want to talk about. Definitively, homosexual acts cannot be approved or celebrated by the Catholic Church, and I'll tell you why. I'll get into it. I'll do a deep dive. Also, we're going to look at St. Thomas and his doctrine on music. Why is it that some music is appropriate and some music is not appropriate for the holy sacrifice of the Mass? I would just have to say that any music that causes you to move your hips is not appropriate for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Okay? All right. Today's gospel, I'm going to go deep into today's gospel. It's going to be like a little Bible study in itself. I'm going to go deep into the issue of divorce from a Catholic perspective. And it's today's holy gospel. But I just want to mention before I go into today's holy gospel, two things. Very disturbing, and this is why I no longer watch Fox News. Sean Hannity calls for legal abortion in stunning reversal of his pro-life stance. Here's what he says. Sean Hannity said, Republicans have got to say that abortion should be legal and rare, quoting Bill Clinton. The whole Safe, legal, rare, and safe. So that's Hannity's position. That's why I haven't listened to him in over a year on radio or television. I'm done with him. Um, I can't listen to somebody who was born and raised Catholic who's now uh, espoused as a pro-abortion position. All right, done with that. Let's um, just want to remind you that I'm going to the Holy Land October 6th to the 16th with my wife Anita and Father Dave Nix. If you'd like to go to the Holy Land with my wife, myself, Father David Nix, and my pastor, Father Craig Freely, who's retired from the military, military chaplain, uh, you can go to my website, jesseromero.com, jesseromero.com, and you can sign up. We still have some room available for the October 6th to the 16th trip, uh, 16th, 2023, nine-day trip to the Holy Land, the land where Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, walked think about that uh <clears throat> father mitch Pacwa calls israel the fifth gospel he says the first gospel matthew mark luke john and the fifth gospel is the actual holy land at least one time in your life you should go and take a trip to at least once not saying 10 times not saying 100 times like steve ray one time in your life it's good to go to the land where the catholic church was started Catholicism was started in Israel. Not, uh, not in Europe, not in America, not in Mexico, not in Canada, in Israel. That's where the Catholic faith was started. Okay, put on your, your, your Bible study thinking caps because I'm going to do a deep dive. It, it requires a lot of uh, exegesis here. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 12. That's today's Holy Gospel. And it says... <clears throat> Some Pharisees 
approached Jesus and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, whatever? Jesus said in reply, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. They said to him, Then why did Moses command that the man give a woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, Because the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, and we'll take a look at that word unlawful, and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if that is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. He answered, not all can accept this word, but only those to whom that is granted. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so, some because they were made so by others, some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept, can accept this ought to accept it, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Matthew chapter 19, verses 3, <clears throat> 3 to 12. So since the dawn of creation, God designed marriage to be permanent, exclusive, and fruitful. We see that in Genesis 1, 28. However, since man rebellion against God, the institution of marriage has suffered many distortions that tarnish its God-given beauty. Moses permitted divorce and remarriage as a concession to the sinfulness of Israel under the old covenant in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Even so, it was ultimately clear that divorce falls short of God's will and plan for married couples. As the Bible says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says, the Lord says, I hate divorce. This leads to an important question. Does Jesus reaffirm the permission of divorce stipulated in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4? Or rather, does he revoke this concession and announce the indissolubility of marriage for the new covenant? The Catholic Church has consistently maintained that Jesus forbids divorce and remarriage The bond that unites a couple in the sacrament of matrimony is created by God and can be dissolved only by the death of one of the spouses. For men or women to remarry while their spouse is living is to commit adultery. Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage is unfortunately a source of controversy amongst Christians. It shouldn't be. Much confusion swirls around his statement in Matthew 19.9 where he says, whoever divorces a wife except for for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. So does Jesus really make an exception to allow for divorce and remarriage? Since the rise of Protestantism in the 16th century, many non-Catholic groups have answered yes. They began to appeal to this exception clause to justify divorce and remarriage in extreme circumstances. However, this view fails to interpret Jesus' statement in light of its immediate biblical context. The disciples' response to Jesus' statement on divorce that it is not expedient to marry in Matthew 19.10 demonstrates that in their understanding, Jesus was 
leaving no room at all for divorce and remarriage. In fact, they viewed celibacy as a preferable alternative to marriage precisely because Jesus' teaching on this matter is so strict, far more so than any of the Jewish contemporaries. So the disciples' incredulous response to Jesus thus confirms the Catholic Church's constant teaching on the indissolubility of sacramental marriage. Still the question remains, what did Jesus mean when he said, except for unchastity, in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9? Over the centuries, Catholic exegesis has put forward three main interpretations of this exception clause. None is endorsed by the church as her official understanding of the passage. However, all are permissible interpretations in as much as they harmonize the exception clause with the revolutionary teaching of Jesus and the Catholic Church on the indissolubility of sacramental marriage. So you got the patristic view. Several church fathers suggest Jesus allowed for divorce in cases of serious sexual sin, such as adultery, but he never permitted remarriage after divorce. The spouses may separate in these circumstances by a legal arrangement of living apart, but they cannot break the marriage bond and they are not free to remarry. The, this view finds support by a consideration of the Greek word porneia, translated unchastity in Matthew 19.9. While the word has a broad range of meaning, it can mean adultery as in the Greek Old Testament as, as tra- translates it. Thus, an adulterous situation may give cause for separation so long as the spouses do not embark upon a second marriage. And this squares with St. Paul's teaching that a separated couple has only two options, to be reconciled to one another or remain single, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11. You have the Le- Levitical law view. This position interprets unchastity in Matthew 19, 9, as invalid marriages where spouses are too closely related Thus, except for unchastity, it means except where unlawful unions exist. Such unions ought to be severed because of the impediment posed by near-blood relations. A divorce under these conditions does not sunder a true marriage a true marriage bond because a valid marriage never existed. It is equivalent to an annulment. So this view is supported by the two New Testament instances where pornea refers to incest. So the apostles charged Gentile Christians to abstain from blood and unchastity. The Old Testament background for this decision in Leviticus 18, 6 to 18 suggests that unchastity refers to prohibited marriages because closely related kinsfolk, just like in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2, pornea is translated immorality. Pornea clearly refers to an illicit union of a man and his father's wife. So, hope that's helpful. Gave you a little exegesis on the sacrament of marriage in light of the words of Jesus Christ as interpreted by the Catholic Church. Up next, we're going to take a look at homosexual acts. Can they be approved or celebrated by the church? Nope, not at all. We'll see why. We're back, Terry and Jesse show. Uh, a couple of technical difficulties. It doesn't surprise me. Obviously, the uh, 
The, the enemy does not want the truth of the Catholic faith to go out through VMPR airwaves, but don't worry, we'll fix it. We'll fix it. I'll just unplug all my uh, equipment here and just reboot it after the show. Okay, so Monsignor Charles Pope addresses the question, can homosexual acts be approved or celebrated by the church? The answer is no, here's why. Okay. In recent years, homosexuality has frequently been in the news. There's an increasing nationwide effort to make homosexual acts something to celebrate, and it ga- has gained great ground and sowed serious confusion even among those who describe themselves as Christian and Catholic. Hence, it is necessary once again to instruct on this matter and to, to reassert what Scripture plainly teaches and why the church cannot affirm what the world demands we affirm. This reminds me, by the way, the, uh, the people that pushed homosexual marriage upon us were Joe Biden and Barack Obama when he was president and vice president, respectively. And in fact, I remember Newsweek had a big cover story on the front page, they had a picture of Barack Obama. He had a halo, a rainbow halo over his head. And it said, first uh, homosexual president. Uh, you, can, you can take a look at it on the internet. I remember that. But the fact is, yeah, it was, uh, it was that uh, duo of president and vice president, which push, 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 push. And here's where we're at today. Homosexual marriage is the law of the land. An essential, it will, so it is necessary once again to instruct on this matter and to reassert what scripture plainly teaches and why the church cannot affirm what the world demands we affirm. An essential fact is that the scriptures are very clear in and unambiguously, uncompromisingly declaring homosexual acts as a serious sin and as disordered. Disordered here means that they're acts that are not ordered to their proper end or purpose. Sexual acts are, by their very nature, ordered to procreation and to the bonding of the mother and father who will raise the children conceived by their sexual intimacy. These ends or purposes have been intrinsically joined by God and we are not to separate what God has joined. In the, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Scripture describes the sinful and disordered quality of homosexual acts by the use of the word abomination. And in the New Testament, St. Paul calls homosexual acts uh, contrary to nature. The Greek word is paraphysine. Contrary to nature, paraphysine. Attempts by some to reinterpret Scripture, just like Father James Martin, for example, to mean something else are fanciful at best and use, and use theories that require twisted logic and questionable historical views in an attempt to set aside the very plain meaning of the texts. Likewise, in the wider culture, among those who do not accept Scripture, there has been an increasing, an increasingly insistent refusal to acknowledge what the design of the human body plainly discloses, that the man is for the woman and the woman is for the man. The man is not for the man, nor the woman for the woman. This is plainly set forth in the, the design of our bodies. The outright refusal to see what is plainly visible and literally built into our bodies is not only a sign of intellectual stubbornness and darkness, as the Bible warns in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 21. 
But it also leads to significant issues with health, even to deadly diseases. And we believe in the definitive nature of scriptural teaching as Catholics on all aspects of human sexuality. They're not merely considered out of date by many in our culture, but are being increasingly pressured to affirm what we cannot reasonably affirm. Cardinal Francis George, rest in peace, before he died, he expressed the current situation in this way. He said this, quote, In recent years, society has brought social and legislative approval to all types of sexual relationships that used to be considered sinful. Since the biblical vision of what it means to be human tells us not every friendship or love can be expressed in sexual relations. The church's teachings on these issues is now evidence of tolerance for what civil law upholds and even imposes. What was once a request to live and let live has now become a demand for approval. The ruling class, those who shape public opinion in politics, in education, in communication, in entertainment, in using the civil law, to impose its own form of morality on everyone, we are told that even in marriage itself, there's no difference between men and women, although nature and our very bodies clearly evidence that man and woman are not interchangeable at will in forming a family. Nevertheless, those who do not conform to the official religion, we are warned, place their citizenship in danger. Whatever pressures may many may wish to place on the church to conform however they may wish to shame us into compliance by labeling us with adjectives such as bigoted homophobic or intolerant but we cannot comply with their demands as catholics we must remain faithful to the bible to our commitment to natural law and to sacred tradition we simply can't cave into the culture of death. We cannot affirm things such as fornication and homosexual acts and reject the revelation of the body as it comes from God. What some call intolerance or hatred is for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's rather it's a principled stance wherein we ourselves, we see ourselves as unable to overrule the clear and unambiguous teachings of the Holy Scriptures. And this teaching exists at every stage of Revelation, from the opening pages right through to the final, uh, final books of the Holy Bible. The church has no power to override what God has said. Let me just repeat that again, in case you're wondering, German bishops. The church has no power to override what God has said. We cannot cross out sentences or tear out pages from the scripture. Neither can we simply reverse sacred tradition or pretend that the human body, as God has designed it, does not manifest what it clearly does. The Catechism of the Catholic Church announces this principle stance with eloquence and with an understanding of the, difficulty, of the difficulties encountered by those with same-sex attractions. From paragraph 2357 to 2359 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says the following, quote, basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents homosexual acts as acts of grave depravity, tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. 
They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine affective and sexual complementary complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. The number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for, for most of them a trial. They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These, these persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they're Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter from their condition. In other words, they're called to fight against their concupiscence and resist their disordered inclinations. 2359 of the Catechism says homosexual persons are called to chastity. By the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. We can speak no other way. We do not detest those of same-sex attraction, but we as a church owe them the same truth we have always proclaimed as coming from God. And out of respect, we must hold them to the same standards of chastity by which we all must live. There can be no sexual intercourse for any who are, who are, who are not in a valid heterosexual marriage. We cannot give approval for it. We do not have the power to do this as, as a church. No matter how insistent, forceful, or even punitive the demands that we do so become, this will, this will not change because it cannot change. God's law cannot change. Sin cannot change. Homosexuals are not being singled out in this matter. <clears throat> Again, fornication, that's premarital sex or sex outside of marriage is also set forth by scripture and tradition as a very serious mortal sin. In many passages, fornication cannot be approved no matter how widespread, how widespread its acceptance becomes. One standard of sexual norms applies to all people, whatever their orientation. Sadly, those of unalterable same-sex attraction have no recourse to marriage, but all of, this, all of, all of us bear burdens of one sort or another. And not everybody is able to partake in everything that life offers. But for the sake of holiness, which is the goal, heroic virtue, heroic witness is necessary. And many of those with same-sex attraction do live celibately and give admirable witnesses to the power of grace. But for us as Catholics, let's remember, God must have the final word in this. And so, let me share with you some selections from sacred scripture that clearly teach against homosexual actions, activity. The witness of scripture in this regard is very consistent across all ages of biblical revelation. From the opening pages of the Holy Bible to the final books, homosexual acts, along with fornication and adultery, are unambiguously forbidden and described as gravely sinful. In addition... Homosexual acts, because they're contrary to nature and to the revelation of the body and the nature of the sexual act, are often described as acts of depravity or as an abomination. Some consider such words unpleasant or hurtful or, you're, Jesse, you're hurting my feelings. I understand. I get it. 
But these are simply the words of the Holy Bible. These are the words the Holy Bible uses. So let me give you a sample of scriptural teaching against homosexual acts. Pen and paper would be in order right now. If you have the ability to get a piece of paper and a pencil. One is in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. What about Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13? The Bible says, if a man lies with a male as with a female, both of them have committed an abomination. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. Doing a a deep dive on the fact that the Catholic Church can never, never, never allow homosexual activity. It goes against divine revelation and sacred scripture. We'll be right back. St. Teresa of Avila says that all the problems of the world would uh, be resolved if, if people would just go back and read the Bible. St. Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church. Yeah, the Bible is very clear, black and white, uh, good and evil, truth and lies. And the Bible is very clear about homosexual sex. If the U.S. Supreme Court or our politicians or anybody would have read what the Bible says about homosexuality, this would have never passed. But again, we are, we are at one country, we are a nation... Once upon a time under God, but we've basically thrown God under the bus. Let's just be honest. And remember, the Bible has also been outlawed by the U.S. Supreme Court in public schools. It's, 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 it's banned literature in public schools. Yeah, you can teach LGBT. You can teach witchcraft. You can teach other things in public school, homosexual sex. But you cannot teach God's word in public school. That's banned. <clears throat> Another passage which is very clear on homosexuality is Genesis chapter 19. I can't read the whole verse, obviously. It's the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the story of the destruction of these two cities, among other things, because of the sinfulness of homosexual activity. Uh, It's too long for me to read here. You're going to have to read it on your own. It's It's Genesis chapter 19. Read the whole chapter. There's also another verse that comments very strongly about homosexuality. It's in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has, has shown it to them in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. For this reason, God, has ga- God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. What's the due penalty? Well, some people have gotten AIDS or HIV or anal cancer just on a physical level, aside from the fact that it's mortal sin. And if you die in that condition, you'll go to hell. And it says the last verse, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them 
up to a base mind and to improper conduct. When a person starts rejecting God, and it's just, it's just constantly rejecting God, uh, well, God is going to end up just allowing them. He's not going to give them a prick of conscience or illumination of the mind. God's going to give them up to their own dark base mind and to their own improper conduct. And uh, those people will self-destruct. A life away from God, a person will self-destruct. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9? The Bible says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Close quote. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Here's another clear verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 11. St. Paul writes, The law is not laid down for the, just, but for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. That's St. Paul. <laughs> so I, I just gave you a, a half a dozen Bible verses. So this is the testimony from sacred scripture. It's very clear. And I'm going to tell you, all the people, politicians, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, all the legislators, all the justices, Supreme Court justices that passed homosexual marriage, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. When they die at their particular judgment, guess what's going to happen? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Judge of the Universe, is going to show all these people, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the U.S. Supreme Court, all the Democrat legislators that push for this, He's going to show them these six Bible verses that I just shared with you. He's probably going to have them read it in front of him. And he's going to look at them with like the Bible says, fire coming from his eyes. And he's going to ask them, so what didn't you understand about this? You know how scary and sobering that moment is going to be? I can't even imagine. I shudder in my boots to think what's going to happen to, to those people if they die in their unrepentance. But to those who, who like to object that Jesus himself never spoke of homosexual acts, let me give you three responses to that. So why is it that Jesus Christ never spoke of homosexual acts? Well, the first thing that I would say is it was not a disputed matter among the Jews to whom he preached. They all knew it was wrong. The second thing I would say is Jesus did say to his apostles, he who hears you hears me, and therefore Jesus does, does speak through St. Paul and the other epistle writers. So if Jesus speaks through St. Paul, and St. Paul spoke against homosexuality, guess what? That comes from Jesus. The third thing I would say is the same Holy Spirit that authored the Gospels also authored the Epistles. They're not, they're not different authors or levels of authority in sacred scripture. 
What St. Paul says is no less authoritative or inspired than what the evangelists recorded. And remember, the teaching of the church regarding the sinfulness of homosexual acts, fornication, and adultery cannot change. It's attested to in sacred scripture, in sacred tradition. The church can only offer the truth to all the faithful and to all in this world, along with the promise of God's mercy to those who seek repentance and who now desire to live, to live chastely. To those who refuse, she continues to give warning and to pray both for conversion and for rescue from the deceptions of the world and the evil one. Cardinal George summarized well both the reason we cannot approve homosexual acts and the solution of celibacy for those of same-sex attraction. The biblical vision of what it means to be human tells us that not every friendship or love can be expressed in sexual relations. That's pretty clear and concise. Thank you, Cardinal George. <laughs> in other words, what he's saying is just because you're friends with somebody doesn't necessarily mean that there's now going to be genital activity. With 99.999% of human beings that you're friends with, you will have no genital activity with them other than your heterosexual spouse in a sacramental marriage. Let me tell you why this was passed by Obama and Biden and the left and the Democrats passed this. They want to destroy Christianity. Why? Because the Christian moral system is no minor part of Christianity. Any more than the heart or lungs are minor parts of the human body. If you overthrow the Christian moral system, you will have overthrown Christianity itself. Therefore, those who are pushing for the institution of same-sex marriage are ipso facto pushing for the elimination of the Christian religion. So what happens now by legalizing same-sex marriage, which has happened in this country, the state becomes its official and active promoter. <laughs> it calls on public officials to officiate at the new civil ceremony, like Kamala Harris and uh, Joe Biden have done. It orders public schools to teach its acceptability to children, and it punishes any state employee who expresses disapproval in the private sphere. Objecting parents will soon see their children exposed more than ever to this new morality, businesses offering wedding services will be forced to provide them for same-sex unions and rental property owners will have to agree to, to accept same-sex couples as tenants. In any situation where marriage affects society, the state will expect Christians and all people of goodwill to betray their consciences by condoning through silence or act an attack on divine law and the natural order. Left unchecked, this anti-Christian trend will become an unprecedented assault on the First Amendment and our American way of life that we do not hesitate to call persecution. Look it. As Catholics, we are not homophobic. That's a made-up word by the left. We are xenophobic. Okay? We're not homophobic. Let me be clear. A Christian is xenophobic. And I know that many people, heterosexual and homosexual, they wrestle with disordered desires. I get it. But we can harness those disordered desires through prayer, through the sacraments, 
self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit and chastity. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit, virtues and subvirtues. You know, many obituaries around the, the, the country, around the world, they state that people have died of AIDS or other sexually transmitted diseases. However, I've never seen an obituary that states that somebody has died as a result of being chaste or being a virgin. People don't die of sexual purity. People don't die of chastity. Remember, our currency says one nation under God. And so let me give God the final word on this topic. Genesis 2.24, the Bible says, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Jesus adds, What God has joined together, let no man separate. If you have problems in this area, I would uh, encourage you to go to the website, CourageRC.org. That's a Roman Catholic apostolate for men and women who experience same-sex attractions and those who love them. Go to CourageRC.org. CourageRC.org. Highly recommend that website. I want to talk about St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, and his doctrine of music. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. I'm going to take this last segment to make some comments on sacred music. St. Thomas Aquinas did speak on sacred music. Uh, let me give you St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, uh, some of his, uh, his titles. He's, uh, he died in 1274 AD. He was uh, a faithful steward of truth. He was, uh, ever since 1317, the church has now called him, called him the common doctor of the church. He's also called the angelic doctor. He's called the universal doctor. He's called the doctor of the Eucharist. And uh, he's also a, obviously one of the doctors of the church. It uh, on July 18, 1323, by Pope John the 22nd, who after having preached around Psalm 85 and having sung the Veni Creatoris Spiritus, come Holy Spirit, and before singing the Te Deum, which means to God, uh, <clears throat> he canonized St. Thomas in the Metropolitan Cathedral of Notre Dame in Avignon, already speaking to the cardinals in the consistory. He had honored both the virtues and the doctrine of St. Thomas. Here's what the Pope John XXII said about St. Thomas Aquinas, quote, he, also, he alone enlightened the church more than all the other doctors. A man can derive more profit in a year from his books than from pondering all his life the teachings of others, close quote. And Pope Pius XI, he also comments, he says, those words of John the 22nd echo those of Pope, of Pope Alexander the, the fourth, who wrote to the living saint. He, he says, quote, To our beloved Thomas Aquinas, distinguished alike for, the, for nobility of blood and integrity of character, 
who has acquired by the grace of God the treasure of divine and human learning. One of the 512 questions and two of the two and two of the 2,669 articles of his masterpiece, the Summa Theologia, that monumental work left and finished, also deals with music. In particular, <clears throat> Aquinas, he's asked, or he asks himself, two questions. Whether God should be praised with the lips and whether God should be praised with, with song. The first question reminds us of the somewhat simplistic arguments of the Itali Italian journalist and writer, Corrado Aguias, who said, quote, praying for God to do or not to do a certain thing implies that his will can be influenced is the same logic as one who invokes a miracle, close quote. Furthermore, Corrado Aguias goes on to say that, quote, every God is, for the believer in him, very good and omnipotent. Why then, why then, want, why then want to bend his will according to our interest? To him who defines himself as a believer in a kind of universal harmony that unites us all, and to those who think like him, St. Thomas replies, quote, We use words in speaking to God for one reason and in speaking to man for another reason. In speaking to God, not indeed to make known our thoughts to him, who is the searcher of hearts, but that we may bring ourselves and our hearers to reverence him. Consequently, we need to praise God with our lips, not indeed for his sake, but for our sake, since by praising him, our devotion is aroused towards him. And for as much as man, by praising God, ascended in his, affect, in, his, in his affection to God, by so much as he withdrawn from things opposed to God. In this sense, music has a possibility of exhorting, reawakening, purifying, and stimulating souls. And bringing a soul to remorse, compunction, bringing a soul to, to the affection of God. So after this clarification regarding the benefit of vocal prayer and divine praise for, for the Christian, the holy doctor St. Thomas wonders about the usefulness of singing and the use of musical instruments during prayer. As stated above, Article 1, the praise of the voice is necessary in order to arouse man's devotion towards God. Whatever, wherefore, whatever is useful in conducing to this result is becoming adopted in the divine praises. Now, it is evident that the human soul is, is moved in various ways according to various melodies of sound, as the philosopher Aristotle stated, and also Bothius. Hence, the use of music in the divine praises is a salutary institution that the souls of the faint-hearted may be more incited to devotion. And to the singers who fall into temptation of protagonism, St. Thomas reminds that St. Jerome does not absolutely condemn singing, but reproves those who sing theatrically in church, not in order to arouse devotion, but in order to show off or to provoke pleasure. Did you catch that? St. Jerome does not condemn singing, but reproves or criticizes those who sing theatrically in, in church, not in order to arouse devotion, but in order to show off or to provoke pleasure. What a valuable lesson comes from this master of thought and model of the right way to do theology to many deluded people who over 50 years have replaced him with Karl Rahner, yeah, and his anthropological turn. 
what strength can we, musicians, composers, singers of liturgical chapels, church organists, and instrumentalists, from the words of the doctor, of the common doctor, what can we glean from him? We want to conclude by making our own words, pronounced by, by Pope Pius XI, during the audience with the members of the Pontifical Roman Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas on, on, in 1923, before the sixth centenary of the canonization of the angelic doctor. He said this, We will celebrate this centenary, making glory to God, thanking him for giving us, for giving us uh, in St. Thomas Aquinas such a large revelation of his infinite beauty of the infinite pleasure, splendors of the wisdom which, which, is, which is himself, God. We will build ourselves on the examples of that great man raised up by God and who never took his gaze off of God, dedicating his whole life to the glory of the church and of God. I want to talk a little bit, of, continue talking a little bit about sacred music here. Okay? Sacred music Unlike the music of the world, sacred music is good for the soul. So, I'll tell you why. Sacred music, like Gregorian chant, has an appeal to the intellect and will. And it naturally begets, it naturally begets one to prayer. Which is defined as the lifting of the mind and heart to God. Gregorian chant does not appeal to one's emotions or appetites like profane and worldly music or even praise and worship where you start tapping your toes and snapping your fingers and bobbing your head. Rather, Gregorian chant, the beauty of chant, draws us into contemplation of the divine truths and the mysteries of the Holy Mass, of the ritual that's in front of us. You know, the soul of a person is directed by music in three ways. The first is that it tends to strengthen the soul and directs it in the right thing. Music can affect judgment. It is clear that music can be used to direct people to the truth and to judge things rightly. Music can be used to move people to judge prudently. And if it can, and if it can affect prudence, music can be used to develop virtue by moving people to perform acts of virtue. It is for this reason that Aristotle says that music forms character. Gregorian chant are the words of God taken from scripture in a sacred language. Chant puts the focus on God's word. It floats. It floats. You can't tap your feet to Gregorian chant. It's unique. It, it singular, singularly lifts the mind and soul to heavenly places. Historically, Gregorian chant was influenced by the Hebrews. They also chanted to God in Hebrew. And we as Catholics copied the Hebrews in chant. We just changed the prayers from Hebrew to Latin. But what, a, what about the modern liturgical happy clappy music? It makes people feel good as well. But what's the difference between Gregorian chant and modern praise and worship music? Well, while, uh, while it's not part of the newer rituals themselves, some of the forms of music employed in them are used because of some sensible or appetitive pleasure derived from the music rather than for their usefulness in drawing the mind and will into closer union with God. 
This leads people to confuse the pleasurable experience with actually experiencing God. In effect, it leads people to think that authentic experiences of God are always pleasant. While in the next life they are, in this life experiences of God are often arduous and exceedingly painful for us. Not because of some defect in the way God handles us, but because of our imperfections and sinfulness which cause our pain. St. Teresa of Avila once said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. The point is that music and all of the other aspects of the ritual should be geared towards weaning people off of should we, should be weaning people off of sensible delights and consolations as the mainstay of their spiritual lives. This is why Gregorian chant, which has an appeal to the intellect and will, naturally begets prayer, which is defined as lifting of the mind and heart to God. Gregorian chant does not appeal to one's emotions or appetites. Rather, the beauty of Gregorian chant naturally draws us into contemplation of the divine truths and the mysteries of the ritual. And I'll tell you, <clears throat> Gregorian chant, it goes back at least to the 4th or 5th century. It's uh, medieval music. <clears throat> but uh, I'll tell you why Gregorian chant has an appeal to the intellect and will, and it begets prayer. It, doesn't, it does not appeal to one's emotions. Rather, the beauty of chant draws us into contemplation of the divine truths and the mysteries of the ritual, whereas praise and worship, it appeals to the emotions and appetites. It makes you start snapping your fingers, bobbing your head, and tapping your toes. Well, that's a wrap. That's that. My name is Jesse Romero. We're here, we, we're here at the end of the week. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, then uh, you can support the show by sharing this full show link at vmpr.org. You can also find us on social media at VMP Radio and our YouTube channel called Full Sheen Ahead. Share us with your friends and evangelize everybody that you love. God bless you. Live in a state of grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. Pray your rosary every day. Go to Mass as often as possible. Go to confession at least once a month. Pray or read your Bible every day and incorporate penance and fasting into your spiritual life. And make sure that before you drop dead, you leave it all out on the field for Jesus. God bless you. See you next time. <laughs>